Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Euronurse. We meet every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Day, Central Standard Time, and uh, we're going to have a great show for you today. If you're watching us on YouTube, great. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button. If you want to learn more about our program, go to our website at Euronurse.com, where you can sign up and register as an attendee. Remember, attendees do not show up on the picture, only the, our panelists are on, on the video screen. Um, but that's where you're able to submit your questions to get answered by our panelists. So that's the whole idea behind the program. We'd like you to join us through the Zoom feed. Um, otherwise, though, we're really glad to have you here. Uh, our first half of the program is going to be general questions. If you've got some general questions, any urology questions you want answered, feel free to go ahead and submit those. We'll be glad to answer those during the first half of the session. We started something new and it's starting to catch on. We're going to do stories. So we've got a couple of stories from our panelists and one of our attendees submitted it. So we'll be doing an attendee's uh, story coming up shortly. And um, then we'll get into our program. Really good program. Um, we have Dr. Andrea Strong, who's going to be speaking today on autonomic dysreflexia. That's a program. That's a uh, something we haven't really discussed much, and I think it's uh, well worth knowing. So it's going to be great to have her talk about that. And um, so, uh, welcome everybody. Hope to keep seeing you. Hope you all had a nice Thanksgiving. Got lots of attendees showing up. I see some familiar names. I see some new names. So we're really glad to see some of the new people joining us. And we're going to get rolling here in just a moment. And let's see here. Um, I do have a comment or question. Um, Charlene Vollmer sent in, at your conference, heard from the reps that MVC moving in with Indiana, which was a surprise news to me. So checked, with, checked then with Rachel at National, and she said, no, it was Indiana merging with Greater Michigan chapter. Uh, it's a little bit behind the scenes news from SUNA. There have been some chapters that are uh, um, having some troubles, I think, getting keeping members and getting stuff together. So they're doing some merging. Um, and for those of you that are in other chapters that want to merge or hook on with Chicago Metro SUNA, they're one of our sponsors. Great chapter. And we're glad to have any of you join us. And of course, there's always your owners to come in and tune in for. So I don't see any questions here. So I'm going to switch over to our favorite story time. And um, I'm going to start with one from our one of our attendees who sent this one in. And this came from Susie Swain from Centralia. And she, she writes, I had an administration day last week and was told by my office manager to put a sign on the door, letting people know that the office is closed for the day. So I wrote the note, only discover the next day what I wrote. Urology office will be closed today and will be reopened tomorrow. Sorry for any incontinence. <laughs> That's a great story. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Again, if you want to share a story, feel free to, to submit those on our website, euronurse.com. And we're uh, I'm always glad to take and read your stories aloud. If you don't want your name on there, just write anonymous. Um, again, thanks again for that great story. We'll go into another question came out. Oh, Chicago Metro is fine, right? No merging from Rebecca. Don't worry, Rebecca. Chicago Metro is going strong. We just had a great conference last weekend, and it worked out uh, good, really good for us. And we're going to keep continuing on. No worry about us merging anywhere. We're not going anyplace soon. Alrighty, so let's see. I'm gonna go over to. Uh, let's see. That's my reminder of what my story is gonna be. Now I gotta just want to tell you, I don't make all my all my stories don't come from vasectomies, but I've had a vasectomy run lately. So this one I am going to be talking about a vasectomy, uh, another vasectomy story. So patient calls up on the phone and asks, you know, to talk to the nurse. I, of course, get the call. And he said, I got a question for you. He said, I had a vasectomy about two years ago and my wife's pregnant. And I said, well, let me pull your chart up and take a look at it. So I look at the, the chart and sure enough, he two years ago had a vasectomy, had brought in all three semen samples. All three were negative. It wasn't like even dead sperm, anything completely negative, no sperm. And so he's like, 
what's the chance that it failed? I'm like, well, I guess, you know, I've heard of recanalization, but I said, you know, even when they try to put this back together purposely, when they try to do a vast reversal, success rates aren't all that great. I said, uh, he said, well, can I bring in a semen sample? And I said, absolutely. Bring it in. We'll be glad to check your semen sample. So a few days later, um, uh, not a, yeah, a few days later, he comes in with his sample and I uh, we run the sample again, no sperm. <laughs> so I call the guy up. I said, hey, I, you know, I, I don't know how to be tender about this, but your sample didn't show any sperm. So I, I don't know. He goes, okay. He says, I got to talk to my wife. <laughs> so I figured, well, that's the end of the story, right? Well, this guy was so grateful that I had delivered this information to him that he called me up uh, a few days later, you know, asked specifically to speak to me. He says, hey, I just wanted to tell you again, thanks for running this sample. He said, I found out that the UPS man was delivering more than just packages. <laughs> and that was my story. So the vasectomy did not fail. His wife's fidelity did. All righty. So that's my great story. So always be careful with those vast samples. You know, sometimes they'll get you in trouble. Um, Lori, you had a story you were going to share with us, right? You'll have to turn on your mic. There you go. Yeah, I did. So, um, yes, yeah, to continue with the vasectomy stories, this was probably one of the first vasectomies that I was assisting the doctor with. And, you know, normally we would do a consult first um, so the doctor can feel the anatomy, make sure the vas deferens are there on both sides. Well, in this particular case, he didn't, and it was just a combined consult with the vasectomy. And, and so uh, as he's doing the vasectomy, he can't find one of the sides. And so it kind of turned into an exploratory um, surgery where I was actually holding the bare testicle in my hand while he's fishing around and looking. And, and this is something that I learned way back that um, he sent him for a kidney ultrasound and he did not have a, or a vas deferens on the one side. And it turns out he did not have the kidney on one side. So I, you know, I had no idea. And I'm sure a lot of people don't realize that if they don't have a vas, uh, vas deferens, they probably don't have a kidney on that one side. Wow. That's a valuable lesson. Yeah. I'm not sure that everybody realizes that. I remember that from way back in embryology. But uh, it's, uh, and I'm, I'm sure John's probably come across that before. Have you had a, a patient like that, John? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I do a lot of vasectomies. Uh, as a matter of fact, 1,200 last year alone. A couple of Saturday mornings ago, I performed 21 vasectomies. So I'd see, I like to call myself a squirrel connoisseur, or uh, <laughs> some people may call it a penis wrangler. So I, I examine a lot of scrotums. And of course, one of the things that I feel for are vas, vas deferens on both sides. And uh, there's what this one patient who came in for vasectomy, and I could not, for the life of me, find the left vas deferens. And sure enough, when I ordered an ultrasound, he was missing the left kidney. So this congenital absence is a real phenomenon. Yeah. Well, there you go. See, come to Euronurse where you learn everything you want to know about urology or you didn't know. So great, Lori, great, great story. Um, one thing I will mention since we still got a little time before we get going. So I'm looking at the schedule going forward and I am going to try to stay on a, every Saturday. We do happen to hit a couple of holidays and the Saturday before Christmas, I'm going to have what I'm going to call my Christmas special. We're going to open presents. Now by presents, I'm looking for gems, any urology um, piece of equipment that you have or something that you're using. If you want to send a picture to me, I'll be glad to present it. If you want and you're going to be online, you know, you're as an attendee, I can actually move you over to the panelists so you can show it on your screen if you'd like. Um, I'm gathering up a bunch of them. I had I went to the, our last meeting and I walked around taking samples from a lot of the reps. Got a lot of cool things I'm going to show you guys, but I can always use more. We got a whole program. So keep that in mind, attendees. If you've got something you want to show off that you've used in your office or tell a story, feel, feel to send that in. Um, I'll bet John might, if he joins us, I'll bet John has a few things to show off. He's always had a couple things to show. I'm working on my, my setup to have that extra camera like you have to do something off a desk shot. So getting all everything set up here. Um, but anyway, that's going to be our, our pre-Christmas show on the 24th. So tune in to catch it and try to 
be a part of it, feel free to bring something along if you want to share our big unboxing event. All right. I don't see any questions. Our audience must be waiting with bated breath for Andrea's talk. So, Andrea, I'm going to let you take over the screen and go ahead and talk to us about auto autonomic dysreflexia. Thank you. Thanks for that story, Lori. I did not know that congenital abnormality with the vast deference. So thank you. All right. So I'm going to share my screen here. All right. Is it showing up? Yes, it is. Great. Thank you. Um, so before I get into this, and we're just talking about the holidays and the shopping season, um, Amazon has what they call Amazon Smile. And it's sort of a charity program where if you sign up, all of your purchases, like a small percentage, can go to your charity of choice. And um, Suna National has one. So I've signed up for it. I don't buy a whole lot on Amazon, but I do use it sometimes. And I've been surprised over the years. At the end of the year, they'll tell you how much of your purchases went towards um money finances um, to help support national Suna. So if you're shopping on Amazon, you might want to add Suna national as your um, smile category. All right. So today I'm going to be talking about autonomic dysreflexia. So if you've ever taken care of a patient with a spinal cord injury, then this uh, presentation is for you, which I think is most of us um, have taken care of patients with spinal cord injuries. I'm not going to cover a comprehensive pathophysiology deep dive into it, but what I want to give you is a you know really good reminders and an overview about this issue, and then practical um, you know guidelines on what to do if you experience this in the clinic. All right, so what is it? This is a dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system, and it leads to an uncontrolled sympathetic response. So remember from pathophys, sympathetic is fight or flight, and parasympathetic is resting and digesting. It can lead to a potentially life-threatening um, hypertensive episode. Whenever there's some sort of noxious stimulus before, or sorry, below the level of the injury. Um, so if the patient has an injury somewhere in the thoracic area, if there's anything below that that's causing issues, normally it's a full bladder or a blocked catheter or urinary tract infection, something urological, but it could also be from severe constipation. I found some other um, issues that could cause autonomic dysreflexia as well. It could be from spasticity, from pressure ulcers, infection, from sexual activity, any fractures, constipation, gastric ulcers, uh, fecal impaction, boils, dislocations, or other urologic infections such as epididymitis or ochitis, pancreatitis, cholecystitis, um, labor and delivery can also cause an episode of autonomic dysreflexia, and just being pregnant can also cause autonomic dysreflexia. So I thought that that was interesting, but the number one cause is something related, related to the urology system. So here's the objective definition that I could find. I did see different objective definitions in the literature. Uh, but what I found is an increase in systolic blood pressure of at least 25 or more above the patient's baseline. I saw some criteria of a systolic blood pressure of 150 or greater or 160 or greater. So it looks like there's still some consensus that needs to be made on it, but it usually doesn't occur until after the spinal shock is over. So when a patient has a spinal cord injury, there's a period of spinal shock that occurs generally three months up to one year. I most commonly see patients in spinal shock for about six months. Um, so they're going to have no deep tendon reflexes. Everything will be uh, flaccid and atonic. They usually need a Foley catheter in that initial, you know, spinal shock. And then we try to move them over to clean intermittent catheterization. So with this in mind, you may be seeing patients at, let's say, six months after injury. You ask them and educate them about autonomic dysreflexia and the patient can say, no, I, I haven't experienced that. It's not an issue for me. 
but then next month it could become an issue, especially if they're still in spinal shock. So keep that in mind. So it generally occurs after spinal cord injury above the level of T6. So here's a reminder on the anatomy of the spine. So we've got uh, seven cervical, 12 thoracic, five lumbar, then your sacral and the coccyx area. So if you look on this uh, diagram here, T6 is a pretty high injury. So usually happens above the level of T6. It's very rare to find below if the patient has an injury below the level of T10, you generally won't see autonomic dysreflexia. It has been reported in patients without spinal cord injuries, although it's pretty rare. You could experience this with radiation myelopathy or cisplatin-induced polyneuropathy. So cisplatin is a common chemotherapy agent used for cancer. So the higher the level of injury, the greater the likelihood of experiencing autonomic dysreflexia is. Additionally, the severity of the episode and the frequency of the episode is worse if you have a complete injury versus an incomplete injury. According to the literature, it's three times more likely to happen in patients if their spinal cord injury is complete in nature. Up to 95% of patients with a cervical or high thoracic injury will have issues with autonomic dysreflexia. All right, so symptoms. The number one symptom is a severe headache. So what happens in these cases is you get severe vasoconstriction below the level of the injury, which incre increases the patient's blood pressure. You also have, have uh, vasodilation above the level of injury. So um, the patient's vessels in the brain will be dilated and the pressure will be really high, uh, which can cause severe headaches. It's also a really big risk for a hemorrhagic stroke because the vasodilation with the high pressure is synergistic. You can also have bradycardia, which is a low heart rate facial flushing, pallor, cold skin below the level of the injury due to that severe vasoconstriction that occurs. You can have sweating below the level of the injury, um, piloerection, which is goosebumps above the level of the injury, sometimes visual disturbances, constricted pupils, nasal stuffiness, anxiety or feelings of doom, uh, nausea and vomiting and dizziness. Most of my patients who experience this will say that they know right away because they feel really bad. They'll also feel some anxiety with it as well. So autonomic dysreflexia in urology. So as I said, the most common cause is going to be something related to the bladder, 85% of cases. Um, so it could be a urinary tract infection, a distended bladder, or a clogged catheter. Um, there is a significantly increased risk of stroke up to 300 to 400% above normal when a patient's experiencing autonomic dysreflexia. So I think this is just really, really important when we're giving care to these patients and the inpatient, the outpatient setting, telephone triage. It's quite common um, in urology. Um, so just a reminder, stroke. So this is the FAST acronym. F is for face. If the patient's face looks uneven, that can indicate stroke. If one arm is hanging down lower than the other, if they're having slurred speech, then it's time to act and call 911 or take the patient to the emergency room. So the harm that can be caused by autonomic dysreflexia, in the short term, it can cause a severe hypertensive crisis. They can have pulmonary edema, left ventricular dysfunction, retinal detachment, intracranial hemorrhage, seizures, or even death. And the bradycardia, that really low heart rate, can actually cause cardiac arrest. In the long term, there's increased risk of cardiovascular damage. So if you've got a patient who's experiencing this, Commonly, there's some patients who experience it on a daily basis. Still, the number one cause of death um, for Americans is cardiovascular disease. So we're still putting a lot of damage and pressure on that system over the years. 
It can also cost a lot of money for these patients. If they're having all of these episodes that requires hospital admissions, it requires ER visits, and they can have a decreased quality of life. So we can prevent harm with prompt assessment and intervention. So what to do when a patient experiences autonomic dysreflexia in the clinic? You wanna put the patient upright, put their legs dangling, and remove any tight clothing or any restrictive devices. Check their vital signs right away. You should be checking blood pressure at least every five minutes and try to figure out what's causing the autonomic dysreflexia. I commonly see if we're doing a cystoscopy and we fill the patient's bladder, they can experience this or um, during a urodynamic study. If you need to irrigate the Foley, you should try to use the smallest amount of water or saline possible because if you fill the bladder even further, it can make the response worse. Um, the literature does say that they recommend warmed saline. I don't have access to that in my clinic. I haven't seen any urology clinics that have access, but maybe in the inpatient setting, you would have access to used warm saline rather than room temperature saline. And if you need to place a Foley catheter for a patient during an episode of autonomic dysreflexia, you should know that the sphincter is going to likely be tighter than normal, and it may make the catheter insertion a little bit more difficult because of that sympathetic response. If you can't figure out the cause, then send them to the emergency room for a workup. All right, so overall good practice. Um, so triage calls. Remember, if you have a patient who's calling on a triage and they've got a spinal cord injury level above the level of T6, if they say they're not feeling well, you know, they've got anxiety, they've got a headache, see if they have a blood pressure machine at home to check it. Um, if the patient calls and they've got a UTI, a clogged catheter, or you suspect urinary retention and you know they have a, an injury above the level of T6, then you should also um, be asking them about their blood pressure and looking out for autonomic dysreflexia. Again, if the patient has an injury above the level of T6, they're complaining of a headache, check their blood pressure. If the bladder is full from a procedure during a cystoscopy or urodynamics, you want to empty that bladder right away. If the catheter is clogged, you can ir try to irrigate it or change the catheter right away. If you suspect a urinary tract infection, change the catheter out, uh, collect a urine culture from the new catheter. If their blood pressure does not improve, or you don't have um, treatments available, and we'll talk about that later in the presentation, then you need to send the patient to the emergency room. If the patient's pregnant and they're experiencing autonomic dysreflexia, automatically send them to the nearest emergency room. According to the guidelines, the patient's blood pressure should be monitored for at least two hours following an episode. If they really need an in-office procedure, like a cystoscopy, and they've experienced autonomic dysreflexia during previous attempts, you could do the cysto under general or regional anesthesia. That will stop that response from happening. Um, you could also, so if a patient experiences autonomic dysreflexia when you're changing catheters in the clinic, you could instill 10 milliliters of 2% lidocaine let it set for about four to six minutes, and then change the catheter out. That has been shown to reduce episodes of autonomic dysreflexia. Botox injections, so intravesical Botox injections can stop the chemical denervation and reduce episodes of autonomic dysreflexia as well. Boosting. So this was super interesting. I had no idea that this um, was an issue, but I found it when I was doing research for this presentation. So boosting refers to a deliberate triggering of an episode of autonomic dysreflexia to enhance athletic performance. So apparently uh, an episode of autonomic dysreflexia can improve cardiac output and enhance oxygen intake. And this has been an issue in the Paralympics. Um, such activities are really discouraged for these athletes because obviously it's, it's high risk and can cause uh, long-term problems. Um, 
According to the literature, it says that boosting can increase the person's athletic performance by about 10%. Um, so the Paralympics and the International Paralympic Committee has put a ban on such acts as boosting. So let me pull up. I was able to find their exact uh, position statement on autonomic dysreflexia and boosting from the Paralympic Committee. So what they do for these sort of sporting events is get a baseline blood pressure for all participants. They check their blood pressure before the competition. And if the systolic blood pressure is greater than 160, then they wait 10 minutes and they recheck their blood pressure again. If it's still above 160, then that person is disqualified from the sporting event. Um, apparently, they can get letters from their physicians. So let's say they're they're hypertensive at baseline. They can get a letter from a medical provider with that. But I just found this to be really interesting. I, I didn't know that that boosting was was an issue. Um, so, um, all right. So let's talk about treatments available in the clinic. So, in my clinic, we cover nitro where we have nitroglycerin, two percent paste. Remember, if you're using this in clinic, you need to wear gloves. Make sure you don't get it on your hands or on your skin because your blood pressure will also drop. So you can put one to two inches on an area of the body that's not hairy, um, and it starts working really quickly in three to five minutes. It does last for quite a while, up to eight hours. Um, and then they can also have rebound hypotension. So they would really need monitoring after um, nitro paste is used. And remember that nitrates can't be used if the patient's taken sildenafil or a similar medication for erectile dysfunction within the last 24 hours. And they should not use nitro if they've used um, tadalafil within the last 48 hours because the two medicines together can cause life-threatening hypotension. You can also use nifedipine pill. They'll need to bite it and swallow it. That starts working in about 10 to 20 minutes. There's also sublingual um, captopril or sublingual clonidine. Those take a little bit longer to work. And then the uh, American Urological Association with SUFU has guidelines list on um, autonomic dysreflexia as part of their neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction guideline. So um, this is the new term that we're using for neurogenic bladder. So guideline statement number nine, during a urodynamics or a cystoscopy, uh, you need to monitor the patient's blood pressure periodically. Guideline statement number 10, for uh, patients with neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction. If they experience an episode in the clinic during urodynamics or cystoscopy, you need to stop the study, immediately drain the bladder, and continue to check the patient's blood pressure. Guideline statement number 11, if they're having ongoing autonomic dysreflexia after you've drained their bladder, you should initiate pharmacologic management. So one of those options that we talked about on the treatment, or if you don't have those options or if they're not working, you need to escalate care. Um, so recommend patients going to the emergency room. Um, so I just have a brief case study for a patient of mine. So he had a um, injury. It was above the level of T6. I can't remember the exact level. Um, he was about six months out from the injury when I first saw him. We talked about autonomic dysreflexia in the clinic. I always revisit this because I'll often see in the patient's chart that they've been educated about it, but they've forgotten because there's so much information. There's so much going on socially and medically with the patient. They just can't remember everything that they're told while they're inpatient. So I always revisit it. He said, no, I'm not experiencing any of those symptoms. It's not an issue for me. So when he returned for a urodynamic study, he arrived and the patient had very high blood pressure. I can't remember the exact numbers, but diastolic was over 100. So the nurse came to talk to me. She immediately had drained his bladder. He had one liter in his bladder at the time. So his bladder was over descended. 
Um, he normally catheterizes every four hours, but because of the transportation and the appointment on that day, he went six hours instead. So right there, we were able to establish that he needs to definitely catheterize every four hours. So we started checking his blood pressure and it was not coming down. So we offered um, nitroglycerin, the patient declined. Um, I told him that he needed to go to the emergency room for further treatment. He also declined, but he promised me to check his blood pressure at home and that I could call him after clinic that day to see how things are going. So I called him after clinic about 5.30 PM and his blood pressure had just come down. It stayed elevated because his urodynamics was scheduled for eight in the morning. So it had stayed elevated all day, finally came back down. So we did some re-education. We tried the um, urodynamics again. At this time, he agreed if it happened again, he would do the nitroglycerin, but it wasn't needed. So I think it was for him, it was just really that over distension of the bladder having a one liter. All right, so that concludes my presentation. I wanna thank you all for listening today. Let me stop sharing so we can discuss this more. I'm not able to hear anything. Vic, you're still muted. Oh, okay. <laughs> Technical difficulties. Great presentation, by the way. Thanks. Very important topic. And for anyone dealing with uh, any patient with a spinal cord injury, this should always be top of mind. Well, why are they coming to see a urologist, right? We're, we're typically doing something or thinking about doing something such as a cystoscopy. Every one of these patients, this should always be in the back of your mind. Anytime the patient is transporting, transferring himself or herself to the cysto table, or you're helping a patient who has that difficulty, you should have this in the back of your mind. Recently, I did have something, uh, a patient like this. It was a patient who needed a cystoscopy. And as physicians, we're always educating, right? You're constantly teaching patients. You're constantly teaching your staff. And one of the things that I said to my MA was, you have to be looking for autonomic dysreflexia in a patient like this. So as I started doing the cystoscopy, he started sweating. And he started feeling, ooh, this doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, his blood pressure was elevated and uh, his pulse went up immediately. The thing to do is to discontinue, drain the bladder. That's the first thing you should be thinking about. And as soon as the bladder was drained, the AD went away and he came back to normal. So always, always, always keep that in the back of your mind. And one of the best ways to ensure that your NLUT neurologic Neuro, neurogenic lower urinary tract disease patient doesn't get into a predicament like this if he or if he or she has a, a indwelling catheter is to think about using a catheter that doesn't block up as easily. I don't know if I mentioned this, but I was recently at a meeting where I learned of a catheter that has actually two balloons, one balloon like your typical Foley catheter balloon, and another balloon that is at the very tip of the catheter. It's called Duet, D-U-E-T-T-E -T -T -E by Poesis. And it's the, the drainage hole is actually between the two balloons. So the bladder cannot collapse around the two balloons to obstruct the drainage hole. So that's something to consider if you have a patient who is prone to clogged bladders, who's also had a spinal cord injury with that is T6 and above. Very interesting. I hadn't heard of that. Hey, can you hear me now? Yes. yes. Batteries went dead. What can oh. I say? It's always something. I checked them earlier when I before I started, and they, you know, they said there was two bars, but I think it was one bar. Went down quickly. So, but that was a great presentation. I really enjoyed it. Um, I had experience with the uh, autonomic dysreflexia in a, a study that I was doing early on when Botox was first coming out. It was, um, they were looking for the approval for neurogenic bladder. Now, of course, it's approved for, for both. Um, so I was the one doing urodynamics for all these patients. So I was getting, you know, kind of a, a, a large number of patients that had spinal cord injury coming in for the urodynamics test. And you, you do encounter it. And it's kind of scary when it happens. Most of the patients seem to recognize when it's going to happen. 
Um, but I think for those of you out there that are doing your dynamics, I, I will caution you always start with a very low flow rate when you start filling the bladder. And, you know, a lot of us are lazy and you want it, you know, you got a number of cases to get done. So you crank it up a little bit to get that bladder going and a normal bladder. That's probably going to be okay. Although I, I'm never a big fan of that. I like a slow fill anyway, because I think you can cause some um, artifacts that wouldn't exist if it was a normal fill. I always think try to be cut as close as, as you can to normal physiology and your bladder doesn't fill quickly. Um, but yeah, with the spinal cord injury, definitely it's got to be a slow fill and, and keep an eye on them. Um, facial flushing was one of the first things I often noticed. So that, that was really cool. I, I, I never heard about the, the boost the technique. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't hear about that's That's really cool. Yeah, it's uh, I had no idea that was going on. And apparently, you know, they find all kinds of ways to induce by putting the straps too tight, even twisting or sitting on a testicle to create this um, purposely can't clamping off catheters. It's yeah. Laura, you've done some your dynamics, right? Have you encountered this issue before? Um, I have not, we don't see a lot of spinal cord injuries, but we did have that happen one time to one of our medical assistants who actually performed it. And we didn't typically, cause we don't see these patients a lot. We don't typically take any vitals. So she had, and she didn't have the experience. So she had no idea what was going on. Um, luckily, you know, some of us knew that, you know, we needed to drain the bladder right away that we kind of knew what was going on and it ended up turning out fine, but it was a little scary for you know, if you've never experienced it before. Yeah, that's when you see it happen for the first time, it's always a little bit nerve wracking. Yeah, I can remember when uh, I was doing a we're doing a, a vasectomy case and as John will probably attest to those guys, they the, the biggest, burliest trucker is the guy who's going to have a vasovagal reaction. And, you know, when you're you're first starting out and it happens, it's like, holy crap, <laughs> is this guy going to die? I mean, they just go out cold. Well, if you've got experience for a while, you realize that it's going to be something that passes quickly. You can put the bed in Trendelenburg and get it to come out pretty quick. Um, but that first time you see things, that's that's when it's, uh, you know, I, I always say that's, that's when the sphincters tighten when you get th that patient. Mm -hmm. Hey, we are open for questions and answers, folks. If any of the panel or any of the attendees out there want to ask a question, I know this is not something we encountered on a day-to-day -day basis, but maybe you've got a question. You've got the experts here. We're glad to answer those questions for you. And before we forget, let's uh, welcome our visitors and uh, attendee, Charlene Johnson, and we have a Charlene Vollmer, Diane, Emily, Francis, Jackie, Karen, Carrie, Leo, Melanie. Neil, Rebecca, Robin, Rochelle, and Susie. Susie's been a frequent attendee. Right. And Susie was the one who sent in that great talk, that great story for this morning. I think we all encounter something in our day-to-day -day, um, working that's worth, you know, kind of sharing. I think it's neat if you can. I, I don't know if, so you mentioned vasectomy and guys passing out. Yes, uh, the most burly of men uh, are the typical, typically the ones who are the biggest chicken yep. when it comes to vasectomies. And they seem to have, or maybe we just realize or recognize or remember that these burly men are the ones who pass out. But since that, that used to happen more frequently in my clinic than now. And the thing that changed was the use of laughing gas, nitrous oxide. People throw around game changer that that phrase a lot, but really nitrous oxide has turned this experience from a scary one into a very pleasant experience for my patients. Uh, I'll, I'll attest to that also. Patients have done much better on, on Pronox. We use Pronox system in ours, which is uh, laughing gas, but that, that, that is I, I was a little nervous when they started talking about bringing it into the office because, you know, we were doing anesthesia cases and he had a, an anesthesiologist in the, in the suite. And I'm like, well, we're the only ones in the suite, you know, do we have to monitor, blah, blah, blah. And the side effects are so minimal. And then it's got decades worth of, of research that, you know, they've been using this for forever. And as you said, it, it, it works quick. Patients love it because they are so much more relaxed. 
and it goes away right away. I mean, you know, five minutes and they're back to normal, which a Valium or something wouldn't do. Yeah. I have a funny story about nitrous oxide. <laughs> it's not necessarily urology related, but when I was a kid, I used to always get nitrous oxide when I was at the dentist getting a procedure done, like a cavity filled or something. I was about eight years old. So after the procedure, they give you a little, like, like a bouncy ball or a sticker or something. So they opened up this drawer and they let, they always let you pick one of these little prizes. It was never candy, of course, because that's not good for your teeth. Um, but I apparently passed out into the drawer of little, <laughs> of little toys from, I guess, from the nitrous oxide. <laughs> So after that, well into adulthood, they always made me sit in the chair for a long time and get oxygen afterwards to prevent me from passing out again. I was totally fine, but kind of funny. I just want to know, do you still get the little toys at the end? I know, right? I don't. I really want one of those bouncy balls again. <laughs> I thought you were I thought you were going to say that you were using whippets <laughs> and not not getting it legit. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, they they call it laughing gas. And um I, we had several patients before I ever saw anybody laugh over it. But when they, they get that, it's crazy. They're just giggling giggling away. And I mean, I, I'm sure John, with the number of vases you're doing, you probably run into a lot of these strange reactions that some patients will have. But my favorite was this one guy who the whole time through the procedure was telling the doctor and I how much he loved us. No, man, I really, I really, I love you guys. You, you guys are so great. <laughs> he didn't remember a thing when it, when it came out of it. Yeah. It's really amazing. The nitrous oxide has an amnestic effect as well. So for some patients, they tell me afterwards, I don't, I didn't remember a thing. And they were the ones who had, full control of the gas. They're the ones holding the tube and volitionally breathing in and out through the tube. And yet afterwards they have no, no memory, no recollection. I do have a few patients. I did have a few patients who we use the gas and they would start giggling. Sometimes the giggle is con manageable, controllable, but some, sometimes the giggle is they, they can't control it. So often you just have them discontinue the gas. If you're having difficulties isolating and, and securing the vas. You just have them discontinued the nitrous and then they come right back to normal. Yeah, exactly. That, and that's one of the things that's so nice is the fact that it wears off because we started for our, we do a, a local block for prostate uh, Euros, Euro lifts and resumes. And so we started to give them the block, but they just have a little bit to get the block in and then they stop breathing it so they can get positioned on the table. Otherwise you're trying to drag this, you know, 250 pound guy down to the bottom of a table to get in stirrups, but they stop it within a few minutes. They can scoot themselves down and it really gives you that great control. Have you ever had the um, shaking chills afterwards with any of your patients as a side? Effect? No, no, that is something that I have not seen. Yeah. I, I had yeah, it with one patient and he was really hitting it hard. I mean, I kept reminding him, Hey, just breathe normal. And he was just like huffing it. And he did at the end, he had kind of like this involuntary shaking and I hadn't seen it before. And I looked it up and it is a side effect. It's a rare one, but it does occur. We, we constantly remind the patients and my medical assistant and I are, we, we use our late nine FM DJ voice, slow, deep breaths or slow, <laughs> deep breaths. And if you're calm, believe it or not, your patients will feel that, Hey, everything's okay. They're calm. I don't need to stress out. Yeah. I think there's even a placebo effect because they control it. They hold the thing in their mouth and you tell them if you have pain, just take a good breath and, and you'll feel better. You know, just knowing that makes a big difference. Yeah. That's similar well, to the studies that they did on the patient controlled an analgesia in the inpatient setting with those PCA pumps where they click the button themselves. They actually use less narcotics in those cases. We're, yeah, we're having all... that sense of control is, is really important. And I tell the patients, unlike how you received laughing gas at the dentist as a child, if you will, you're not this, the way we deliver it, you're not being forced to breathe the gas. At the dentist, they're working in your mouth. So you can't hold a tube obstructing your oral air, airway, but they have to get the gas to you somehow. So they use a nasal mask, whereas laughing gas, nitrous oxide, they're volitionally holding a tube 
and without them holding the tube and forming a seal to breathe in and out through the tube, they're not going to get the gas. So just explaining that to them, letting them know that they have control over the gas gives them a lot of reassurance. You know, what, what, is, what is worse for a guy? Having somebody mess around down there on a body part that you've worked through your, your entire lives to protect, talk about loss of control, right? So giving them something that they have control over is, I think, really reassuring. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we do have a question or a comment from Rebecca Strickland. I've had one patient where the gas had no effect, less common, but still out there. And I think that's pretty true with almost any kind of analgesic that you use. You know, I've had patients that we've given Valium to that say, oh, I didn't even know I had it. And I, personally, I've taken Valium for a procedure and didn't know it was working. I didn't feel anything from it. So I think there's a certain amount of patients, but with the gas, some patients don't breathe properly and it's, they're not, you know, if they're breathing around it or nose breathing and they got it in their mouth. It's not going to work. So you have to kind of be sure they're doing it properly. But thanks, yeah, I, thanks. I have the same experience when it comes to dispensing or prescribing diazepam for anxious patients or before vasectomy. I used to, I did everything. I tried nothing at all. I tried oral diazepam. I tried nitrous oxide. And for the super anxious patients, I even have a uh, anesthesiologist come into the office who will put the patient out completely. That's extremely rare, maybe one a year or maybe fewer than one a year, but it's extremely for the guys who are really anxious. But diazepam, a lot of guys, a lot of guys come in and tell me, doc, I feel no different when they've taken diazepam. But nitrous almost always works. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, we turned this into a little bit of a nitrous talk, but I think it's still the same effect. I had a comment. Um, you had spoke, uh, Andrea, about using the saline at a warm temperature. Mm-hmm. And I know that I, for some solutions, we've just taken and microwaved it. I know it's they, okay. there's some controversy about the microwaves can release certain things from the plastics. And I don't know if, it, if it's well studied or good evidence of it, but, um, you know, and I certainly don't, you know, you be careful. You're not getting it too hot, but just to take the chill off of it might make sense. Just throw it in the microwave, take the cap off. So it can't, you know, pressurize. And I've done that before and it's worked well. Okay. Good to know. I had another thought. We were just talking about the Valium as far mm-hmm. as patient education goes. When I used to educate my patients, I would tell them, you know, we'll give you Valium before the procedure. You can't drive yourself. Don't operate heavy machinery. Don't make important financial decisions. You can't work after this because it's a, you know, sedative. Um, I had one patient who said, okay, I can't drive myself. So I'm going to take the bus. He fell asleep on the bus. <laughs> And missed his, it missed his appointment. So you just remember, remind them they can't take a bus or any, someone needs to drive them and accompany them. Absolutely. Yeah. Valium is a weird drug because some of those guys who said it had no effect and others, will, I can't even get them out of the chair to get them back to the vast room because they're so sleepy. So yeah, yeah. it seems like the Valium hits in after the vasectomy. Not yeah. Before. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, I have a comment here from Melanie Waddlington. A severe vitamin B12 deficiency can cause the nitrous to have little to no effect. Good to know. I didn't under, didn't know that. So that may also explain why some patients have not had good effect from it. So thank you for that comment, Melanie. Anybody else have any questions out there? Feel free to throw those up on the Q&A, comments, concerns. You just want to tell us how much you like the show. That's fine too. <laughs> we'll take it all. Otherwise, if we don't have anything coming in here, panelists, if you've got any great last words of wisdom to the audience, otherwise we'll go over to the um, after hours a little early this today. Oh, Rebecca did send in, not a question, but last week was antibiotic awareness week. Oh. I did not know that. Thanks. We got a good audience out there keeping us informed. So, yeah, really vitamin B twelve. I have to look into that. Yeah, yeah. It's like I said, it's it's one of the things. You know, the goal in this whole program was my way of giving back to urology, uh, something I've been involved with my whole life. 
what I get out of this is is amazing because the information that I've been finding out every week is there's always something new that I learn. And I think that's the real plus that this show has brought. And, you know, so just when you think you know everything, make sure you don't you, you stay humble. <laughs> All right. Well, great. It's been great having everybody here again this week. Um, really great presentation, Andrea. I really appreciated it. Looking great forward job, to our, our, our next week's talk. Um, I think next week is Pessary, if I remember right, um, from Amy Hall. That's going to be a great talk. We haven't done anything on pessaries before. Um, Charlene Johnson said, thank you. Very informative. I look forward to more. Great, Charlene. We promise to bring you more. Um, and again, for those of you that have not uh, attended the after, power, after party, just go to euronurse.com. There's a big red button that says the after party. Just go ahead and press that button. You'll be instantly transported over there where we'll be just hanging out. You'll be on screen if you want and just kind of chit-chatting, talk about anything you want. We've even had car, new car information discussed on it. So it's anything goes. But otherwise, um, yeah, go we ahead. have uh, uh, Francis Foley had raised a hand there. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know what that means, Francis. Granted, if gone. you have a question, you can put it in the Q&A. Hand, hand raising doesn't tell me much. <laughs> Maybe it was an accident. But Also, if you guys have any uh, topics that you want to talk about in the future, we'd like, to, we'd like you to share those with us so that we uh, can prepare for future meetings. Yeah, thanks. That's a good, good point. There is a post survey that comes after we close this down. And there's an area where you can fill out any subject that you'd like to have uh, talked about. And I keep a list of those. And even more important, if you put something down, hey, I'd like to hear about this. If you know somebody who's a really good speaker, and that's how we had Todd Thompson. I never heard of him before. Um, but somebody said, hey, I've heard this guy speak about these chronic Foley problems. And uh, I mean, I learned a ton from that guy. So they said, and here's his name and sent me the information. It's great because I'll, I'll reach out to these people and try to get them in. Um, you know, we've got some real great experts out there in the SUNA community. And I've been trying to reel as many of those in as I can. Diane Newman, who's kind of the uh, sweetheart of SUNA is going to be uh, talking in a, a January sometime to us. So we've got some great talent coming in and we've got a lot of great talent that's here every week. So I'd like to thank my panelists for their devotion all the time. Andrea, Lori, John, it's great working with you guys. It's fun to be able to sit and chat all the time with you guys. So really enjoy it. So before we get out, let me see if I got any more questions. Here's Fran. On a sadder note, oh my gosh, Ardeth Hale passed away at the end of October. So those of you that are, are new to, or that are part of SUNA, you know who Ardeth Hale is. She's been involved forever. I can't even remember how old she is or was, but I've known Ardeth a long time. I mean, such a sweet lady, amazing, you know, devoted to SUNA. She was working um, on the foundation after the uh, she quit working, you know, when she retired. So yeah, she's going to be missed. Sad. All righty. Well, on that happy, less, ha less than happy note, let's switch over to our after party and see everybody next week. <laughs>